welcome to the Afghanistan Project podcast. I'm your host, Beth Bailey, and it is a huge honor to welcome today's guest, Pashtana Durrani, the founder of Learn Afghanistan, which is an innovative NGO that allows girls to gain an education in even the most remote environments where access to electricity and internet are not possible. Pashtana is a visiting fellow at the Wellesley Centers for Women. She's received numerous awards for her work in education and supporting girls and women, including being named an education champion by the Malala Fund, being chosen as a global youth representative for Amnesty International, and being among the BBC's 100 influential women list in 2021. I'm here with Pashtana to talk about the, her new book, Last to Eat, Last to Learn, which is a masterclass on instituting change in a sustainable manner. Um, where formal systems for education in Afghanistan have faltered, Pashtana harnessed passion, reason, and cultural knowledge to create a system that reached girls without educational prospects and inspired them to dream, which is just incredible to me. I can't even say how grateful I am to have you here joining me today, Pashtana. Um, it's an honor to talk to you about all the amazing work you've done. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for reading that book. Thank you so much. You you put it so elegantly. I'm like, oh my God, that's my book. Yes, that is. <laughs> it is. And I I meant to show it just because. Oh my God. Oh my God. No. You should see how many highlights are inside this thing. It is ridiculous. And oh what God. I love about it too is your voice is so authentic in it. You're not out here acting as if you are some, you know, high and mighty. Like, no, it's funny. It's, um, you know, very, there's a lot of sardonic, dry humor that I just did sat right inside my heart and made me laugh. And, and a lot of really important observations that I think Westerners are going to need as they look into these big concepts. I think for 20 years, we really, Westerners just decided how things were going to go in Afghanistan. And it, it need, there need to be Afghan thoughts and voices and, and really, a lot of the thinking that helped you inspire, learn, um, and maybe it's the flying chapal, him from not uh, mispronouncing, but maybe it's shoes flying at you uh, that helps. Oh yeah, yeah, no, it's flying chaplaks or like, you okay. know, it's even like um, uh, hangers, many things, oh, many Sure, things. anything, <laughs> just things, anything things that can be you. <laughs> thrown at you that helps you to really, um, you know, make those thoughts happen, but it's really a great book. I hope everyone reads it and thinks deeply about all of the things you talk about in here. Um, so I want to get started. The first story that really touched me in this, you know, you uh, just for read or listeners who haven't had a chance to read yet, your father was the Khan or the leader of your Pashtun tribe, the Baraksai tribe. And while you were growing up as a refugee in Pakistan, he set up an education system inside your home. And there's a story about another young girl named Pashtana, the other Pashtana, <laughs> and it's it was a really moving story. And then it has a very sad end. And I wondered if you could kind of tell that story about your relationship with the other Pashtana and then when she left the classroom and why. So I, I was talking about it yesterday and I was like, the one thing I was reflecting on was like, I still don't like doing that. Like, you know, I wouldn't. Like if I was still back home and I had lived all this life, I would still not go to the second class. Like, you know, once I'm done with my actual schooling, I would not go. Like it's just too much mental pressure, you know, a lot of expectations. But so growing up, like my dad set up this a school within our house, which was for all the people within the camp, but like the girls, especially the girls, because boys could actually take the bus and go to the city. So while this happened and it's like a sudden occurrence and you grow up seeing it and it becomes sort of normal so there are like people like you know teachers have their favorites so my aunt that i never mentioned is like my aunt had a favorite her name was bartania which just by the way means britain <laughs> so it's like a funny story behind it so she was like she was this blonde kid like you know colored eyes so her his her family would call her bartania and then we would also call her Britannia, which is which is basically means a British woman, you know, or like the country of Britain. So then there was another person that was my dad's favorite. And she used to study and she had this like Barbie cut, you know, like we used to call it the Barbie. She had these here and then all the back and they were dark and she was pretty and she was like lighter in skin. And I hated her with all my heart um, because I was like one of those tomboy kids with like, you know, like ball cut and... Uh, 
I was not necessarily the like I literally had burned my shoulders because I used to wear this one frock or like this t-shirt and I used to run around the house so growing up you are that kid and then you're compared to this person who's like all tasteful and elegant and all of that and she does good in school so it sort of does take you especially when your father likes her and is like you know every time she would do something like for example the polio vaccinations would come so I would hate when I would be vaccinated and I would like, like I would keep it in my mouth and go out and throw it away. Whereas she would just gulp it. And I'm like, like, whatever girl, whatever, you know? Anyway, so, and then my dad would like, if you don't do this, I'm going to bring persona to this house and you're going to go to persona's house. And then I would be like, oh my God, that's not life I want. So I used to go to her house. My aunt used to give me stuff and I used to drop it, but she was very good. She was way too good than I was in school. I'm going to be honest. And we sort of grew up with that, uh, like, you know, two, three years, I think of my life until I was nine or something. I knew personal was better than me. And I was like, okay with it, made peace with it. But I was trying my heart just to compete with her. So but I think at nine or uh, something around that age, um, I remember the one thing that happened was like Persona didn't have her mom. So her, her she was remarried. She's not remarried, but she was married off to a man who already had kids. And that was sort of my first time to see something happen so near house or within your house where somebody who is your neighbor goes from coming to school every day to just becoming a name, you know, that is told in stories and everybody's horrified and mortified about, oh my God, what happened to that young girl, you know? So I, I think uh, with the story of Parsana and Nurbibi, it's like something personal because it almost touches home. Like these both women I was exposed to, one took care of me and the other was my classmate and sort of friend-ish and who would have been a sibling if my father had adopted her. Um, but that's what happened with Persona. And that sort of still, still makes me sad that she might have been somebody, you know? Like, I mean, she was brighter than me, so imagine. So, yeah. And, and it's something that, you know, I see it all the time, these stories of young girls right now in Afghanistan being married off at such a young age. And, yeah. and I can't even imagine someone so close to you. Like, oh, that, that could happen yeah. Me, oh, yeah. Obviously, yeah, it was never something that your family was looking at. And I love, you know, your relationship with your dad in this is so special. Um, I think he was just such, you know, pushing for that education and showing you all of these things. And what was it like being the daughter of the Khan? Because you talk about this too. You actually had more freedom than your mother did because yes. of tribal rules. Can you explain that a little bit and explain about how he brought you? And kind of showed you the ropes so i remember when we were very young there's this um place which is like very far away it's like a four-hour drive or something so because it was we lived in refugee camp in Sarkhab, and so we take this ride from here and then this place is almost the border um the supposed border of afghanistan uh, with uh, pashtunkhwa or pakistan and what happens is like so all the people from his tribe who were in afghanistan they had come down uh, like across the border and they were sitting and then all the people who were refugees also went with my dad and among all of them the only kid there was who was in the front seat sitting it was me Oh, wow. <laughs> and I remember and like this is like huge huge halls and people are eating and it's like one of those I think it was around 700 800 people who were there for like you know this big tribal jirga which I think somebody had um, somebody was going to give some blood money to someone to resolve a big tribal feud and these people are eating and I'm just holding my dad like his hand and he's moving across the rooms and he's talking to someone and I vividly remember there was no electricity and the guys eating they look at me they're like hey look at that that's a kid that's a young girl she's wearing t-shirt and pant you know and I was looking and I was like whatever like I was being miss me like you don't belong here like I was wearing my pink uh, purse and my do you remember those shoes like with the glass shoes the cinderella cinderella slippers i used to wear those and then wear my tomboy shirt <laughs> and then go with my dad and then when they were talking it was like so what yes i am a girl so what you know like i was being bad and the funny thing is i have realized my dad didn't do anything he didn't tell me like shush or like you know don't be disrespectful or something like he just let me have it you know mm -hmm. so that's that's some uh, one of the funny stories that um 
my mom makes fun of me for that when she reminds me that I almost fought with someone in a jirga that was already resolving something else because he called me like, you know, oh, that's a young girl. What is she doing here? You know, so I did have that sort of relationship with my dad throughout my life. Um, I remember when like, you know, I, I know it's going to sound very weird to the people in the West, but it's a funny thing because so when I was like almost 20 or something, like people would still tell my dad, oh, you should get married. You have only one son and you have very less kids and you have this huge, like, you know, uh, estate and everything and you have to handle and you have all this stuff. Who are you going to leave it to? You should have more sons. And then my, I remember my dad telling me, he was like, I, I tell people, I'm like, I'm not afraid of her mother. I'm afraid of her. I'm afraid of my daughter. That's why I don't want to get married. Like, of course, he didn't want to get married for other reasons, but he would make fun of me that he was afraid of me for not doing that. And that sort of defines the not only the relationship but the the dynamics you know how he sort of not only respected that but also respected the fact that how much it's going to impact us in the long run so i appreciate that but yeah definitely when i was growing up rules completely were different from my mom and it still are like my mom still hides her my like you know her face from four of my uncles who are like my older than my dad um she doesn't show her face she doesn't I mean, last year I graduated and I posted a picture of my mom and my dad. I got so much backlash from people. Like people would go and take that picture and send it to my brother and stuff. So like I put my pictures all the time. Mm -hmm. Nobody gives that backlash. So even like apart from my dad, the whole world treats you differently if you are in that position and how you are somebody's wife, you know, you're treated a different way. So I think that sort of hurts me and I still try and go and defend a lot of what I do and how I see my mother in it and how she has her own person than rather than being somebody's wife or something. But like that's the, the whole story, like how defined her role was, like how limited and defined her role was. And uh, I, I sort of do understand why it was but I'm not pro it at all. Like I would never, never let it be because it's her own choice to be that person, you know? So it was a different story. Like I was allowed to do a lot of things. I was allowed to talk back. I was allowed to be mean. I was allowed to be all of that because there was this learning trajectory, but everything was expected from my mom to be graceful, to be elegant, to be patient, to be sacrificing, you know, what is expected of women. And I sort of don't like the idea of women sacrificing everything. So um yeah it, it would definitely a uh, different dynamic yeah it's interesting yeah it's interesting to listen to because i know that that happens here in the west too where every yeah. generation women get a little bit more power it seems and i still love i mean your mom is a very strong character in this book when she comes at you it's mm -hmm. like she does oh, yeah, not yeah. mince words and so she does have this strength she just yeah. can't use it in a social circumstance yes. and I loved that both of them really fostered that in you and you are, I, I think if they hadn't done that, you probably could not have done the things that you did because oh, you, know, no. you had to learn to express yourself and do all these things in that environment. And it was totally, it's incredible. Um, just the formation of your spirit um, from that young age. And one thing that you mentioned that cracks me up is the, the so-called border. Um, because that's that's almost its yeah. own character in this book. The <laughs> fact that, you know, what your sister coming across the border near the end, and um, it's once you know it, you can find your little ways, Khan Bibi's yeah. path through, you know, this border region that is not entirely patrolled. And I know that there are so many refugees in Pakistan now, probably not as many as there were before the Pakistani government began to tell them to leave, but who probably have use those paths for oh yeah definitely it's like it's a long border and the funny thing is people tend to think that it's like an ironclad border or like you know one side uh, like you know with the way it's politicized especially when i used to be in kabul if you were a refugee returning refugee you were seen a very different lens you were seen as a spy or something else or like even a 17 year old would be like under that thing. But the funny thing is people across that border, they have a faith of their own. I, I, I make fun of them for that. And it's like, 
when you call on them, they're going to be there across any side of the border. They're going to be there for you. And that's one thing you can heavily rely on. And even with my sister that I just fought with before this call, by the way, <laughs> we have surprised. our agreements. <laughs> not, not embarrassing yeah. at all. We have our disagreements. But I think even like, you know, when I was growing up, I, I when I grew up, I think I was at that point where I understood my community and I respected that. And I, the reason was because I was more exposed to the male side of it and understood how they thought. But I also understood how to deal with them. My sister didn't. And she didn't care. She doesn't care. She still is like, you know, trying to pursue fashion designing or whatsoever. So like she's a different person. But now that she has seen all of that. Yesterday we were talking, she's like, you know, when Learn started and I used to follow you, I used to be like, God, this girl is crazy and she's going to drive us all crazy. And I used to follow you with your stuff. And I used to be so mad and I used to sleep in the car while you were cleaning people. And now I look at you, I'm like, oh my God, like she knew, like she, it was like, she had a vision, you know? So even across the border, now she knows, she knows how to deal with people, how to talk to people, how to be respectful about it. Um, because the one mutual thing across that border is respect, is relying on each other, because no amount of money can get you that. No amount of connections can get you that. The only thing that gets you through that is if your father had a good name, if your grandfather had a good name, and how much of a good name are you keeping right now? So that's like the mutual thing you have in between. It's like, oh, you're from that family. You're from that family. Okay, cool. We're cool. We're nice. We're going to help each other, you know? Like it's sort of transactional, but in a very different way than the way it's thought here, you know? For sure. Oh, it's so different. And it's cool. You, you talk about that at various points in the book that are it's very uh, enlightening to me even as somebody who has, I've been following Afghanistan since 2008, but I've never gotten it, such a, just a very thorough idea of how those things work. Um, yeah. You know, with examples, it's really neat to see how those dynamics work. And when you are meeting family members and the first thing you do is are people who you think might be your family and you kind of like grill them, <laughs> you know, oh, and like yeah, here, if you did that with somebody, they'd be like, oh my gosh, what's going yeah, on? Yeah. You know, the first but thing that's... is you have to humble each other. Like my mother is my humbling force in my life. <laughs> and I do that to other people. We bully each other for fun. That's fun. We do it. <laughs> thing. It's so different. It's crazy. Uh, and I love it. I love watching those dynamics reading about those dynamics between you it's really beautiful and unique um i wanted to get back to learn so before learn started you know you had the other pashtana uh, who kind of was in your head growing up and still i think you know you talk about how you wish you could tell her that you studied for her um but there were some other girls that you met along the way who were really eager for education and, you know, some of them tried to teach themselves, like a young girl named Dardana, and then uh, two of your family members that you met in Kandahar, who were not able to receive education because of your own family. And I wondered if you could share some of their stories and talk about how they inspired you to start Learn Afghanistan. So Dardana definitely was a force behind all of this. I'm going to be honest, like, I still vividly think about uh how that like how i had to spend that night like i didn't go to kandahar street like i had to spend that night for me to have this awakening of some sort um before that i was going to be a politician a parliamentarian i was going to run for a, par a parliament and then my dad wanted me to be a diplomat which was like i'm like bro <laughs> what did what were you thinking <laughs> not not very much so but the the i think when i was in that place and then that day i really want to reflect on that i don't do it so much justice is when somebody comes into your house which is supposedly your cousin and you have never met them in person but you have heard so much about her and she comes in and she is excited to go and meet the ex-president of Afghanistan and she's supposed to present. And then there is you who is also from the same family, from the same background, from the same roots and has been become an IDP, which is an internally displaced person. And, but she's a refugee. So she's, I'm a refugee who's coming back and she's an IDP. So we are both not in our own ancestral land. We are moved to this new place but I have more access to stuff than she does. And I think that was something that she maybe thought that I would understand it more than anyone else. Because when she came to me with that paper, which is still up on my Instagram, is she was not asking me. 
she just knew I'm going to reach places where I can ask people for this, you know? So I sort of knew that, okay, this might be something that I, I need to talk about, you know, with my own family. So when Duradana came and she sat and she ta- we talked and she shares this thing where she's like, oh, she's not going to school because there is no school, but she's learning at home. That sort of, you know, that just changed the whole trajectory where in my head I was like, oh, no matter what, you can go hungry, you can go homeless, but you study because there are schools everywhere, you know, or even like people in your community are making efforts. But that was my dad making the effort, my aunt making the effort. Um, there were other people who were doing individual efforts. Durdana was doing her own effort in her own way, you know. So she was learning from her nephew who was coming Thursdays and Fridays. He used to take lessons. He used to go and she used to repeat those lessons until the next time he came. And that was like awfully inspiring but also like so horrifying to know that it's a peaceful district the world has given trillions of dollars to afghanistan and used to don't have a school for girls and it is and the funny thing is when i went to kabul and i talked to people it was because it's under the cultural supposed cultural norms that's why they don't want to make a school and i was like if that's the cultural norm then how come this girl is learning it cannot get more cultural than that like it cannot get more cultural than that so that sort of takes this whole thing. So Durdana was definitely the start of, of it. And I, uh, and I promised her when I was leaving because, and I don't talk about this because I think it's her story and she, maybe someday she will talk about it. She had lost her mom to cancer and she really wanted to become a doctor. And she wanted to be that person. And I was like, I don't know how much I can do, but I'm going to make sure that you do something like with what you have. And the fact that you're learning at home is respect it makes me earn you like you know i want to earn your respect to be around you you know so i promised her that and i leave and i go to Kandar. and then among all that privilege among all that money among all those riches and these amazing big mansions and houses daughters of the martyrs of afghanistan people who were in army and police their kids ended up with their families and they were seen as a third or fourth uh, tertiary sort of uh, thing that people would care about because the first thing you care about is your own kids, your own family. So those girls were not going to school, but their brothers were going to school. And uh, when I met these girls, their father had been uh, shot um, in Argandab two years ago or something. And uh, it was, he was shot by Taliban. And it was because his uh, her cousin was working with um, the in the past with the, the General Rasik, who's very famous and everything. But her dad was not even involved. He was just a military person or a police person. And he still got shot because family relationship. And they were taken in by this grandfather and like the the this, the nephew who was like shot, uh, who was the, pers- the reason. So I talked to these girls and they can speak good Hindi. They can talk in different languages. And it's amazing and fascinating how Afghans are good with different languages. Like I have never met anyone who can speak six languages. I have met Afghans who can speak six languages. So I'm like, we should all be working at the UN or something. But anyways, so when I started talking to her, all I could see was this cousin of mine who is still in privilege, who's not in an IDP camp, who doesn't necessarily have the problem of money that I see because it barely costs anything to send your daughter to school. But because she doesn't have her father to have that vision for her or someone who's looking out for her. And most of all, it's it's the notion that if we had to invest in between and choose between the two, we'd rather choose in a son than in the daughter, you know. And that sort of ticked me, you know, because if you don't have a father, then you're going to be chosen by your relatives to be given that opportunity. Um, so they were definitely the second person because the minute they started talking in Hindi and I was like, how, how do you guys know that? And they were like, oh, because we watch Hindi serial and they could speak some Turkish too. And I was like, oh, okay. And that's where it made me realize, okay, you will pick up learning anywhere you can. It just has to be like, you know, you just have to formalize it. And I, even then I was like, oh, whatever. Like, I'm not going to be like educating people. I just promised that one Dardan. I didn't even promise these girls to be those uh, to help them because it's like they are already there maybe so at some point their parents will realize or their family will realize um but then later on the whole year trajectory ended up in this being uh, becoming my life's mission you know because i work with Dordana throughout the year i get her into school we take the whole family we force the whole family into shifting to the city they come to the city they end up Dordana ends up in a good school 
And the funny thing is, she calls me after a week. She's like, I cannot do this. Like, I don't want to go to school anymore. And I'm like, how dare you? <laughs> I invested this whole thing. You cannot do this. Because I went to her brother and I gave him my word that she, if you do this, she's going to stick to it, you know, and she's going to be someone. And that's like bad if you do that. So I was like, how dare you? You do that to me. And then I'm like mad. I'm crying and I'm at my home, but I go and talk to her and I go to her school. The one thing I realized was she was not at fault. The schools were not equipped enough to have kids who were learning on their own and get them and make them sit in class or give them that training. Schools were the periods are 45 minutes. The teachers were already at capacity. And back in the day, I would blame the teachers and everything. Now that I reflect on it, I'm like, it was not even their fault because the whole district is like, or the whole province is 17, 18 district almost. And the whole province had only 17, 18 schools. Like, imagine if you divide one school per district, it's still not enough. And one district has like hundreds of villages, you know. So for me, that was something I was I was sad about. And then that's where I realized, I was like, okay, this is not just her problem. This is everybody's problem. People like us who are coming from Maro Farhanbab, whose fathers are shot, who are losing brothers who are coming from these spaces where school is not available, but we're willing to learn. We still have this huge gap of, oh, the government thinks that we still have cultural uh, trash to go around. And I was like, what? What does that even make sense? Or um, the fact that the people who are here to help us are at full capacity. So we have to have a space that processes this whole thing, readies the students, and then puts them in public schooling. And that's how Learn came into being. And that's how I went to my dad and asked him for money and loan. And I make this joke all the time, but it's like funny because I never gave him the money back. I was like, I need $2,000. And he's like, okay yeah like you know take it and i was like okay but you don't have questions he's like uh, you're gonna do something useful with it like i know you will do something useful with it and he gave me the money and i went to Kabul and i did the registration and everything i put the site up i went and like talked to the people i took the uh softwares and i started talking to people in spinboldak and then i started talking to people in daman and then I didn't leave anything on any stone unturned until I was like, okay, these people have to be on board with me before I even claim to be this person. So this was the whole thing. But I definitely was Durdana and then, of course, the girls uh, in my own family. Because in, in Islam, we say, and in Perso also, we say, like, you know, charity starts at home. So if you don't uh, realize and understand and uh, understand the flaws and problems in your own family, you don't. You cannot solve the world's problems if you're and that's the fun that's the uh, joke that i make about afghan male feminists when they're like oh we're feminists but then they don't show their uh, women they told they i don't know what their women are doing but then they talk to other women and they're like oh we, we worry about your rights and i'm like do you <laughs> like you should be worried about your own female women's family members rights you know so that sort of thing yeah yeah it's that's the perfect segue to my next question because it, you know i was going to ask you about the big things that impeded you, but I'd rather just say, you know, your uncles, your dad was your biggest advocate, but your uncles were always kvetching about, you know, oh, there's too much money spent on oh, yeah. education, you know, oh, we, know. and how interesting is that, that, you know, you need to have your father to be your advocate and, and this whole system of trying to convince men, because you had to convince the local leaders that women, you know, women's education was important. And I loved how you did this because it took you some time that I think, what did the first leader that you sat with tell you? He was like, why? Isn't that what he yeah, said? He was, like, he was like, look around. He was like, and he rightfully so. He was like, look around, kid. We don't have electricity. We live in mud houses. We graze sheep for like, you know, that's like our thing. We have cattle. We don't even have water enough to cultivate the land. This is the most rugged and arid district, which was Daman. And he was like, we're under Taliban control. For, like he was like 10 kilometers from here there's taliban the reason you're protected is because you're here and you're invited by me he's like look around why should i educate my daughters and i was like how do, how much how long does it take you guys to send your women to hospitals when they're in labor and he's like three hours because the road is not good enough it's not even the proper road and then there is no car like there was one car among like 40 houses or something it's like oh okay so that like i understood where i could get him and i knew where he was getting me because good point why should i educate my daughter i don't even have opportunity for my son right now you know but it was such your answer is perfect it's the three-part answer of islam says 
that women should be educated. Yes. Um, an educated woman helps educate her children, which means yes. that Afghan boys get an education from this. I mean, you're, you came out with this beautiful answer. And as soon as you had that answer, it was like, all right, I'm on board. You yeah. just needed to come up with the answer. And, and was- the, the funny thing is, I, I sort of am the, <laughs> I don't give up until people, like, uh, I know is never know in my head, unless I'm part of the consensual part. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the negotiations, no. I'm talking about the consensual, uh, the negotiations, no, where in negotiations, you have to give in something and then you have to expect something. And with this particular guy, he was not disrespectful. He made Landi for me. Landi is like the dried meat and it's so good. And it's like only royalties fed that. Only your family elders are fed that. So he made Landi for me and he was respectful and he showed me around and he took pictures and he was he was there, you know. So he was not he was not against my existence as a woman as a woman who's talking to him, not hiding her face, not even related to him, only had vague an idea of my dad. And he was not even from my tribe, he was Popolzai. And um, and he was not from my district. So there was nothing that was binding him to respect me. The only thing that was with, because we, I was an Afghan woman and he respected that, you know? So for me, I was like, okay, you know, we'll talk about it. I was like, okay. So he's like, Islam says that I should educate my daughters, but I'm already educated them, educating them on uh, like, you know, the Muslim side of this learning or like the Islamic side of the learning. Why should I do anything else? And that's where it made me realize that they don't have a need for education. There is no need for education in the current setting because they're so off the grid, you know, and even if it's that, I cannot give him just philosophical answers. It has to be something that's bigger. It has to be spiritual. It ha- because we are extremely spiritual and faith. The people who follow faith, so it has to be something that is foundationed on faith, mm-hmm. that has a cover of culture because the culture has that, and then it should be like you know built inside with the reality, which is the economy or the needs or the demands. So that's where I came. I was like, listen. Islam says that you have to learn from like, you know, your mother's womb until you die. You know, Islam also says that women and men have to pray. So if Islam is not discriminating against in the middle of the two genders for praying or for when they're learning, how are you discriminating? Why are you discriminating? And then the second thing is, I understand your sons might not even go to schools either. Second thing is you have a need for doctors right now. And we don't, you know this, I know this, that the doctors are not going to come to you. But if I assign a doctor for the next five years to you, and you promise me to send your daughters to school, which is going to be in your place, in your space, once they're certified, they can become the midwives that you really don't have to worry about somebody coming from the city to be your, uh, you know, the person that is going to take care of your community. It's a very respectful job. And a lot of people are willing to, like, you know, uh, have their daughters be in that space and then the last but not the least uh, in our Afghan history of the 3000 ancient history or 3000 years ancient history or the 300 year old modern Afghanistan history women have been at the forefront and I told him I was like we're sitting in Daman where the uh, ministers of uh, like you know Ahmad Shah uh, Baba are uh, in like you know they, uh, they that's where they are buried you know so it's like we're in a place where Ahmad listened to his mother, Zorogunana, who's like, you know, I would say the first lady of Afghanistan in a way, <laughs> because she was the mother and she was like the mother of the founding father of Afghanistan. And I was like, when you look around the world, you can find more details on Zorogunana than the father of Ahmad I was like, imagine that, like, this is our, this is your great, great grandmother that I'm talking about because tribally he was related to that more. I was like, this is our roots that we're talking about. And I was like, when British came and invaded us, it's not the men we remember, it's the women that we remember, Malalai, who fought the British, you know. I was like, Aisha Durane, the first educated queen, is known to be that. So it has to be something that's not alien to them. It has to be told to them that even 100 years ago on this very holy land that you said, there were women who were controlling this land politically, economically, and socially. They were all educated. And you cannot do justice to their uh, history by not educating your own daughters, you know? You have to come up with all those things before you talk to someone. Yeah, and you did it. I mean, it's 
Oh yeah. It's the most yeah. beautiful <laughs> argument. I have it. It's one of my sections here that's got the post-it on it because it's just so it's perfect. You did an excellent job of, of clearing that up. And one thing I glossed over and meant to ask you about though, is you had another amazing opportunity on the table that uh, your mother was really unthrilled that you didn't take. Can you talk a little bit about what that was and why learn was more important than taking that opportunity? So my uncle, one of like my dad's cousins, he was in Germany and he kept on forcing my dad to like make me apply for all these colleges. So I got into other colleges in Germany and then I got into a sum in, I think, Belgium or someplace. But this was like a big deal because it was a Oxford preparatory program. It was like I used I, I would get into this preparatory program. If I do well, then I'm going to end up in like, you know, the Oxford school, like, you know, in on its own and I could study politics and everything. And if anyone and everyone... You might not know where uh, England is or Britain is or London is, but you know where Oxford is. If you're somebody who is studying, you know, or has been around the world or who's mostly uh, like invested in politics, because all the political leaders of Asia have been to Oxford. So that was like sort of thing. And I was already in that prep program, you know, and I could just apply uh, for the visa and stuff and get out, you know. And my mom was very much on board for me to get out of Afghanistan at that point because, because there were bomb blasts where I was on the side when those happened. And then there were attacks and they were all circulating around me for some reason. Or I was there at some point. So my mom was not very happy with what I was doing with my life. And she thought it's like a gap year project that she's going to do. But... When I declined that and took this up, I think my mom is not really happy. and not think she made sure that I know that she was not happy. Um, but then at the same time, I, I think for me, learn was uh, more than just like, oh, I'm going to do this and uh, like, you know, help people. I didn't have a savior complex. I still think that our communities need to take, like, you know, dig themselves out of these graves that we were put in. And, um, and then most importantly for me, it was like, I'm educated enough to bring this solution to the table. So imagine if I'm bringing this, how many more people like me are out there and who are going to bring these solutions to here, you know? So for me, learn became sort of like a calling on that end. And it was not because I wanted to save my community or I wanted to be famous, you know? I was way too famous back then just for my, like, you know, sarcasm and stupidity and being all this loud, you know? And... Um, I would have very well been famous if I came from Oxford and I was like, you know, running for parliament or even like took over what my dad was doing. Like that was enough for my family to be a nipple baby, you know. So <laughs> I could have done all of that. But this was something and I'm going to be honest, nonprofits and NGOs are looked down on in our part of the world or especially where I come from, because they're like, oh, these are like project people. They do their projects and then they move on with their lives, you know? So they don't yeah. look up to it. In the West, people look down on nonprofits because they don't make money. In in Afghanistan, people look down on nonprofits because they're like, oh, these are project people. Like they don't really care about you if you're not the interested party for the donor. So for me, it was a hard choice. And sort of, I had to make sure that my parents understand that it's what I'm choosing is going to be respected in our community. And uh, most importantly, the fact that this is our community needing it. And we cannot wait for Save the Children that some of the project people pitches us as potential people to be helped. I was like, you cannot expect them. And most importantly, when I was young, I used to go to English school. So my dad would force me to teach the girls whatever I learned in English in the second time uh, in the school. So it's like, if you expected me to contribute, then I'm going to contribute in this way and you have to be okay with it. And I was respected. It was not accepted by mom, my mom at all. But I, when it started, it started happening and whatever happened. And then when my family used to meet people who talk about me, then my mom's like, if you would have gone to Oxford and done a PhD and come back, I would have not been this happy the way you are happy right now. So, you know, it changes, but it definitely was a hard first two years where my mom was not on board with it at all. I'm sure. And, and yet you made it happen. And I wanted to have two comments about the things that we just talked about, because you did have fame, you know, you were writing op-eds that were putting you on the government's radar and the Taliban's radar. radar. Oh, yeah. There's a part in here where a Taliban, I'm sure that that bomb that went off at the place where you were supposed to present 
that was intended for you. You had just chosen to give someone else the floor because they were the more respected, older individual. And you thought that your father would kill you if you didn't I let him have the floor first. I met this old lady. I don't agree with her politics, but I still kissed her on her hand. I was like, if my dad was alive, he would kill me either. I didn't respect her enough. So I had to kiss her on the hand. So, oh, so yeah, that, those yeah. are the norms. Those are the norms. You can't just run away from them just because you don't agree with them politically, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, you had that fame, like you could have done those things and you stuck with your guns on this and it wasn't something that was, you know, intended to make you look good. It was really, it's such a pure, you know, you want to bring this to people. And, and the other thing I wanted to say is when you were talking about schools and here, you talk about how the government would ask for money for a school, they would build the school, the Taliban would bomb it or otherwise destroy it. And then the government would say, well, Hey, let's have more money for a school. Like let's, you know, but but nobody was getting educated in that environment, which yeah. is why learn was so important because these girls with you ended up coming up with this system where there were tablets because you always knew it's you know tablets were the answer, but it's not going to be you know this fancy yeah. tablet. It needed to be something, and this it was a was it a German company or a Danish company? I can't remember who it gave you the original. Rumi. It's Rumi. We still work with them. It's oh, Rumi. Canadian. It's a Canadian app. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And they're solar charged, plastic, like very durable, you know, and you preloaded them with stuff. So it's all there and anyone can use it to learn. And it's, you know, it's the the reason I brought up the schools is that it's something I used to write about all the time um, when I was first learning about all of our efforts in Afghanistan is, you know, you slap together this school but you're not making an enduring, like that school is going to fall apart. Yeah. It's the people are the important part. And so learn takes away. You don't need the school anymore. You don't need to worry about is the Taliban going to do something to this school? It's at your home. What's the Taliban going to do about it? Um, Yeah. (laughs) But I love that. And so I love the story too. And I'm hoping you can tell it about the six-year-old girl who was one of the pilot users of the learn tablet and what she told you because it just warmed my heart and i love it so this is uh like you know my cousin malali she used to go with me to these schools and she used to talk to these kids and there's a picture of me and her in the back so um this girl that i was talking to and this this is the time where we're not so good on money i'm still begging my dad for money and he's giving me money and my mom is not happy in my life and I'm already at the American University of Afghanistan which is already attacked back in the day and I'm already like pissing off people in the government and them are already sp- labeled as a spy by them then by the Taliban they don't like me or my dad or any or and even my family and tribe so I'm in the middle of all of that and um we start our first pilot because of through me and then my dad gives me some money and we get the tablets we pre-upload everything we get everything ready we go to the school we make a partnership with them in malajat which is like almost the suburbs of um kandar and we go there and we start talking to people so we give them the training and we give them the tablets and i talk to the students and i think there is a picture of them and yeah that's the picture that we had from the students uh, from that uh year so we do all of that and then once i'm done with my spring semester I go in May to just look up on everything. So I go to Kandar and I meet the students and everything. And once I sit with them and talk to them and everything happens. Um, so before I do that, yeah, I talk to the, I, I get in, I sit in the office and I talk, start talking to the principal uh, who vaguely knows my dad and like, you know, who's friends with my cousin and everything. And me and my friends from the uni, they are also sitting there. So we're all volunteering for this project. Nobody's getting paid. One Mohib was getting paid like $35. <laughs> I had to make fun of him for that. So um, it was all volunteer based. And then um, as I started, I'm, I'm talking to him and he's like, oh, so I'm like, what is the progress? And I'm like, where did I'm like, he's going to tell me, oh, it's not something that like, you know, we need more tablets or you need to invest more or something of that sort. And I'm like, so I'm a little anxious. And then he's like, you know what? Um, there's this girl that you need to meet. She, the the stories are so good that the girl has learned it by heart. Like she could literally just animate the whole thing to you. And I'm looking at him and I almost tear up and I'm like, suck it up, suck it up. Like you cannot cry in front of him. And I'm like, thank you so much. I needed that. 
So um, then they bring in the girl and the girl comes in and she tells me the whole story. And then she talks about how she wants to like, you know, paint and she wants to become an artist. And I, I just sat there thinking to myself, I was like, maybe she won't remember me or what we did or even the story when she grows up. Maybe she'll remember everything about it. And she might like, you know, have like, you know, this might be her initiation, you know, because growing up, like you know the lion king had such an impact on me like i would see my family all in it and i was like uncles my dad everything happening and i was like then you know the simba and i was like like the dad was my life of course i was the main character <laughs> my dad was mufasa <laughs> but like um and i swear to god one of my uncles do resemble scar so um <laughs> is it the one where you took the con ship because no no i know it's so dramatic i still make fun of all of this but um so this girl when i was talking to her was like i remember people in my life who impacted me when i was young and i i I used to tell my dad i want to be like her or i want to be like this person and of course i wanted to be my dad so badly that every person came in secondary but i was talking to her and then one of my friends reached out to me and he was telling he's like how his um maternal aunt's daughters studied in the same school and she would tell him that oh this girl comes to our school and she talks to us about oh, like you know tablets and she trains us and it's like and he was telling me she let she says that i'm gonna be her when i grow up and i was like Thank you. Yes, please. <laughs> so, so that's like sort of cute things that that would happen across everything. And um, now that we reflect on it, I was talking to my cousin Malali the other day, and um, she used to go with me to these places. And she had posted this picture. She's like, "Oh, person used to deal with the elders, and we would train the kids, and it was fun time, you know." Then I was like, "Yeah, that's true. Like we were so naive, and rightfully so. It's such a good thing to have that." And this girl was just the right thing that we needed at that point. Like it was almost six months into this training pilot and I had taken so much money from my dad and I didn't have any funding and I was doing it all like on my own. And the people who were with me were not even getting paid for the day, you know. So all of that sort of, you know, it was such a good beginning. Like when I reflect on it, I'm like, it could not have been more perfect than this, you know. Yeah, it's an amazing story. I felt myself starting to tear up when I was reading it, especially yeah. how you cried in the office. I was like, oh my goodness, I I can just imagine all of those things and finally feeling like, okay, this yeah. can work. This can yeah. work. And it's more like, I love that you talked to, it's the Lion King and you fought for that the entire time that that has to stay because learning isn't just about you know memorizing a text. It's something speaking to you and making you feel a certain way and you know to that end you've named all your programs at learn after afghan heroines yeah and i love that because those are things that here in the west we don't know about afghan women here like we do not and i think our our view of afghan women and i've argued this a lot on the podcast are these pictures we saw of the taliban era you know yeah blue burqas right and that's what we think because that's what we've seen and you are harnessing these stories and showing these girls, this is who you come from. Yeah. This is who you can be. And I think that is so much of what we can, what we tell ourselves we can be is what we become. And without having those examples, like you don't have the dreams don't have a place to start, you know? it's like you know when i was young i was in grade three and they used to talk about these famous scientists and the only person in that book was madame curie mm-hmm. and i was like oh my god like you know there was a woman who won nobel prize and she was so good at it you know badass and then i grew up and then growing up of course i was already taught about my history my women so i never had that question that the world saw us different you know Mm -hmm. i thought they knew how brave we were how smart we were how badass our women were or like how amazing our history was but the more i grew up the more i studied the world and the world history and then still we had so much then where the countries were not even recognized and we had women who were running literally uh provinces and states you know and then I t- got to know that, oh, we're barely seen beyond that blue burqa. As long as you ha- see that as- through that gaze, you're never going to ex- accept the person, the Afghan woman that is behind it. And she's so powerful. She's so smart and intelligent. I wouldn't say resilient because 
resilient does does not do it justice but she has been that way not because of this conflict but because from the starting of her roots from where she comes you know from the mountains of afghanistan from the beautiful land and everything that she owns and has you know from the beautiful embroidery that she wears and she's all that powerful with her feminine self she doesn't have to become something else she doesn't have to be man enough to do it she's woman enough to be doing it and she's an afghan woman so for me those were important to be told you know to show it to the world that you really need to reevaluate the way you look at afghan women you really need to reevaluate the victimhood of afghan women how do you place them in that and how your politics has placed them in that you know it's very important for me even now because someday when i have daughters or kids i really need them to uh, grow up in a world where afghan women are seen very different from what i saw like you know from what i saw when i grew up not when i was young young was a different thing yeah sure yeah and i think that's so and you have to think about it you know the taliban the reason they're trying to repress afghan women is i think they do recognize just how strong afghan women are and they yeah. know that if afghan women had a voice right now they would not be in power in yeah. any way shape or form making the rules that they make which is why they're so intimidated by the meetings that just happened that they refused to attend and things like that you know they they know those things and so yeah oh my god they know they recognize it i was uh, in on an al jazeera interview with the uh, this other journalist and then sir shain was on it too who's like a taliban spokesman or something and when i said you're you're doing this thing wrong and he couldn't contradict me he started yelling like that's the that's the only thing he could do. it's still on the internet he started yelling he's like you you're making uh, uh, like you know you're pro- doing propaganda and i was like okay then prove me wrong prove me wrong that schools are open you know okay tell me mm-hmm. and so this sort of like you know and then like you know every time we were on some tv news channel and anything and when they cannot respond back to what i have to say then they come up with their own sort of excuses they start labeling you and it's not uncommon because that's what the republican Repu- republic times did too you know when their men couldn't do anything else they would do the same thing you know they would label you they would like you know harass you in different ways but this time it's a uniform policy like a blanket policy for all and that's what pissing me off is like it doesn't matter i could have fought whatever back in the day was because i constitutionally i had the right to be where i was as an afghan woman today i'm reduced to mere reproductive system and i refuse to be that i refuse to be acknowledged as that you know so those are important things to understand and reflect on and understand the dynamics you know that was powerful uh yes yeah, I and i see it and i agree and that yeah um two things i want to ask cuz i promised you we would be at an hour and i'm seeing that we're coming close and i don't want to take too much of your time because you have so much going on but you know in the book you talk about being named a khan in your tribe which had never to your knowledge happened before and i think you were 23 at the time so here you 22. are 22 22 year old khan of the baraksai tribe named that way by these local leaders after your uncle actually took the turban right and said he was the khan and the local leader said no i mean one of them even cried and said you are him like about yeah. your father to you i mean it's so powerful and that is incredible to me it shows this progressiveness that we don't hear about in afghanistan how do you think we can harness that at a time when the taliban are no longer in power because the taliban will not remain forever see this is why i still go back to afghanistan under radar and i still build my constituency because i know there is an afghanistan waiting across this dark time and that afghanistan is going to be willing to accept me the way i am and uh, my constituency is going to lift not me up maybe i'm not there but another woman who's going to fill my shoes you know another girl another person i don't know who but somebody um and that's the reason we build i still build my constituency and that's the reason i believe in it and i sometimes am sarcastic about it i'm like um all these people who are like who tell you we're the representatives of all these people you know okay tell them ask them if they can bring out like almost around 300 people outside for you today because i can <laughs> i'm not claiming it because 300 women come out every day to learn to study to get educated and almost 40 men protect them 
from uh, for doing all of this, you know, and from surveillance. And those 40 men are related to 40 families. And apart from this, people work on my lands. They still do. There are families who are still being uh, employed by uh, the farming lands. There are people who are still calling me and texting me and asking me for stuff, you know. And it's it's not coming under learn. No. Um, if floods are happening, if earthquakes are happening, or um, if somebody's son was in police and now they need help for money, they cannot come to me through learn. They come to me because they know whose daughter I am, what responsibility I have, and what my commitment to them is. And that's what I follow. And that's how you build constituency. And yes, it might seem very selfish when you say build constituency, but that's how you do it. You are there for them. And yes, I may not be there 100%. I may not be there for all the requests, but there are things that I do throughout the year that ensures that it's intact and it's much more than this. And uh, within the Baragzai, so within the Baragzai, I, it's funny, I don't know if you will even like, you know, people listening to this will get it, but you have to know all of these, you know. So when we were young, we were all taught. Um, I still have the Shajara and which is like the family tree. So it's like Durani, Baragzai, and then within Baragzai, it's Navradin. Navradin has Taruzai, and then Taruzai is like, you know, it's gone into Drikhanzai, uh, which is like the three Khans. And then Drikhanzai, the first son is like the Adokhil, which is my family. So you need to know all of that, you know. And I still visit one of my uncles who is like the general for the place where we are from, Maruf. And he was teaching me last summer about like how uh, 150 years ago, this tribe was fighting against this tribe. And then we gave them like, you know, freedom and independence. So now I make fun of them when I'm talking to them. So it's sort of, you need to understand your history in order to do all of that. For me, Barakzai is a huge tribe. It's a huge tribe. It's all over Afghanistan and even some parts of Iran and even Persanhua after the changes and everything. And within that, the Taruzai family is something that we have harnessed for the past, from what I can remember, for the past century. We have been there for them and they have been there for us. So it's not a one-way street. It's like, you know, both of us have done things for each other. And I, when my grandfather was doing it or when his father was doing it, things were different. People came to them for job opportunities. People came for them for land. People came for the, to them to resolve their tribal issues. When my grandfather came into a power, it was all the Soviets were fighting, so we have to become refugees, and who's going to lead us into becoming that? My grandfather did that. When they were refugees, and they were like, oh, the UNHCR, UN is coming, and we don't have somebody who's going to represent us. My dad and my uncle sort of navigated that, and they became very famous in that. And then when it comes to me, I'm in very uncharted waters where the politics of it is messed up. I'm a woman. I don't have someone who could guide me because with my dad, he had his uncles to guide him. With my grandfather, he had his uncles to guide him because it comes after the passing of the father. With me, I'm getting I, I now get navigations from people within my tribe who are the elders, who supports uh, who supported my dad and now support me. But apart from that, I do my own effort. I do my own research. I meet people. I talk to people. I understand them. It's, it's you know, because I still get uncomfortable when I'm, like, being called that because I, I don't know how to, like, you know, I don't think I am my father. I can fill those shoes. But there are things, there are times where people call my mom and they're like, oh, we love your daughter. Can we talk to her? Can you please invite her when she's here? And there are people who cross borders just to see me. You know, these old women whose sons they had lost in war or something. And it's not because... I live in the U.S. or because I'm this. No, it's mostly because I'm my dad's daughter, but also because I remain committed to their cause when my dad passed away. Because when my dad passed away, the people would call me. They were like, you haven't become orphan. Our calm or our people, our tribe have become orphan. So those are sort of important things to me. And I know there's a lot of criticism of the way I think and the way I believe and the way I was raised towards it. Because people think if you're tribal, you're only going to care about your people. No, in LEARN, we go throughout 34 provinces. My vision is by the end of 2025, we have 34 schools out of 34. Uh, we have 34 schools within 34 provinces. My goal is to ensure all girls get education. My goal is to ensure all ethnicities, tribe, I don't care, whatever your religion, tribe, color it is, you need to be in school. That is my goal. But I cannot shy away and run away from the fact that apart from LEARN, I have this 
responsibility and I cannot turn a blind eye on it. So I have to be there for um, if somebody's son passes away, I have to call them and give them my condolences. I have to be there to share the happiness of their marriage. I have to be there if somebody needs help money-wise or something else. Those are things that are left to us in legacy, you know. So it's hard. It's hard to navigate. I'm criticized for it most of the time. I'm praised for it most of the time. And I'm loved for it within my community. And I'm opposed by other people within other side, like sex of Barakzai's. But it's okay. It all comes with it. My dad had it too. So I'm not afraid of it. I'm committed to it. Yeah. I think it's so important. And I'm hoping that other women, especially because it's almost like I hope that these two things play off on each other, that the girls that you're educating through Learn can see and that their parents can see, look, look at that. Look at this is happening. And she's doing a beautiful job and she's leading. And look, our daughter can lead too. You know what I mean? That's what I want to see is that this is That's just the goal. Of like, yeah, exactly. That it's That's the goal. That's women, the goal. once again, are in these positions of power and not just hyphenated Afghans, because you do talk about that a lot in the book. And I want people to really pay attention to that. You know, Afghanistan has had so much um, flight over the last decades because of the conflict that's going on. And you have Afghans who've been raised in the West who might not be as, as comfortable in that tribal environment and might not be as tied to the people who have stayed and endured. Not that leaving isn't enduring. It's just a new kind of normal that you're yeah. not assimilating. And sure, maybe there are some things that those people can bring back that are great for Afghanistan, but they also need to understand just like we failed to do for 20 years, the people we were working with. And so I just, I can't say enough good things about what Thank you're doing you. and the hope that it gives me. And the last question I have for you is listeners who are paying attention today, what can they do to help educate girls in today's Afghanistan? I think the first thing anybody, I, I wouldn't say not only learn, but any organization that has currently given you proofs that they have people in Afghanistan and they are teaching girls, volunteer with them. We have so many volunteers that volunteer their time with us and teach girls English and computer skills and all of that. We have around 300, 300 girls who are right now getting educated from grade 7 to grade 12. We had our first batch that just graduated from grade 12 with the transcripts. Yay! This step. So um, people who are going to show you those, please volunteer with them. Your skills, your time is the most valuable thing you can give. Second thing is shit about their work, shit about our work. Any, any person who's doing... See, I, I cannot only alone save Afghanistan. And the goal is not to save Afghanistan. The goal is to build Afghanistan. So Afghanistan is right now not on fire, but it is being held hostage. So how do you build that? How do you recreate that? How do you access that? So it's important that people who are doing efforts, they're supported in all ways. Their stories are shared. They're given that recognition they're given that spaces and resources that they need. And the same goes for learn, like share our work, donate to our work, talk about our work. If you have time, volunteer with us, but then do the same thing for everyone because we might not be able to reach all people in Afghanistan. And that is something I have to make peace with, but there are people together, we can all reach Afghanistan. So do all of that. That's the most important thing anyone can do. Last thing that I would like to end the note on, which you talked about is, my goal is why 3,400 girls. Uh, there's a documentary called Daughters of Destiny. It's an Indian documentary on these uh, girls. That is, um, these girls have to touch at least 100 lives within their own life. So these girls are chosen from these lower caste communities. They have to get studied. They become someone. And then they have to impact 100 lives within their lifetime. My goal is I'm going to ensure that we impact 100 girls per province. And if we divide that, even if we divide it, so per district, it becomes ends up into three to four uh, uh, leaders, women leaders. In next 10 years, the goal is that if you educate 100 girls to the full context of grade 12, even if 10% of them becomes political leaders, economical leaders, 20% becomes teachers, 30% becomes doctors, engineers, and 50% just stays there and do the the most like you know median jobs like becoming a assistant or like you know running business or something like that you will still have 100 local genuine uh leaders who are going to be there who understand this but also has access to that and can bring both and within 10 years each province has that 
each province can harness that and look forward to it. And if we can do that, imagine if somebody else is doing that, like, you know, 3,400 more people are doing that. So the goal is not to just keep girls in school. The goal is to get them graduated, get them into good colleges, give them diplomas and transcripts, harness their leadership, make sure that they end up in places of decision making. And then in 50 years, we are still not crying about Afghanistan and conflict. We're celebrating our development. And it's not so bad because I saw other countries getting developed, like, you know, the Middle East and everything. So why can't we do that? You know, so that's the goal. That's the mission now. I love it. I, I wish you so much success. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> it is that I, that's the path to, to the future. As far as I can see, yes. you know, building up all of that capacity, um, the economy, peace, because educated women are not going to let their children become terrorists. Yeah. Um, it's all so important. Um, before we close today, I want to make my call as I always do. We usually end every episode with a letter from an Afghan because usually it's two Western voices talking and that doesn't convey the experience of Afghans. So for any Afghan listeners, we always encourage you to share your stories, whether it's of the war years or life under the Taliban or during that short withdrawal period that was so chaotic. And uh, you can send those stories if you want the, to do written stories, or even if you want to record something, you can send it to the Afghanistan Project podcast at gmail.com. And then just Pashtana, thank you for everything you've done to help girls achieve education and just writing this book. I think it's going to be really valuable for people who are looking to make change in the future. So thank you so thank much you for doing thank it. You. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It was my pleasure entirely. Um, for all our listeners, thanks for sharing your time and supporting the people of Afghanistan. Tasha Kaur, and we hope to see you soon. Oh, thank you.